the zone. The Prophecy Zone, your end-time watchman, bringing you light in a dark world where truth is rivaled with a lie and the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. everybody this is Brenda Johnson I'm sorry about the delay I was on hold or pause I want to thank you so much for joining me on as the day approaches and I hope uh, you guys are all doing well today I have a very good show for you today we have been focusing on Islam and we are going to continue our focus on Islam the more I study this the more I realize and see how the events that are ha going on today in the Middle East uh, goes with Bible prophecy. And what is happening today uh, in our nation, in our world, is really uh, telling. And I want to really focus today on uh, what I call, or what is called, Dawa Islam. My show today is called Dawa Islam. What is it and why is it dangerous? Many people do not understand what is actually happening today uh, with Islam and with the Middle East. I am finding more and more people are a bit baffled by what's uh, happening with Egypt and Libya and the 12 countries that have been in an uprising. As I study this and as I continue to uh, monitor the situation, it is really amazing to see how Bible prophecy is is uh, actually going forward and that this is part of uh, what has been spoken of. We live in amazing times. I have a few books to suggest today, one that I've been uh, reading in quite a bit and it has been one of the most amazing books for understanding our times is a book by uh, 
a man named Jabil Javor. I'm not sure I'm saying his name completely right. I haven't heard him speak, uh, so I haven't heard him say his name. Uh, he is an Arab Christian in Egypt. And in 1993, he wrote a book called The Rumbling Volcano, Islamic Fundamentalism in Egypt. Now, if that doesn't catch your attention, the content of his book will. And if you have the opportunity to go to a library or uh, like I did, I found this in a secondhand bookstore when I went to study Islam I, uh, not that I haven't studied Islam before, but I went it, in this time, uh, when I'm doing this particular show, I went and got about 20 different books on Islam. And this was one of the ones I kind of picked up in the in the pack. And because of what is happening in Egypt, I thought I'd, I'd start reading this. But it has been such an eye-opener that I really want to suggest this to anyone who is interested in understanding what's going on right now in the Middle East. Islam is on the move. Islam is in revolution right now. And if we do not understand our past, we're not going to understand our present. And uh, this book that I've been focusing on and reading on, um, it hasn't been my only book, but talks about the history of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and how it is infiltrated and become what it is today, an umbrella uh, w- that supports all kinds of uh uh, fundamentalist organizations such as Al-Qaeda. Uh, it, it supports uh, Hamas, actually created Hamas. It is uh, in, over care in the United States. It is uh, Intifada. It is the Holy Land, uh, the Holy Land um the Holy Land Foundation, sorry about that, had a, had a little bit of a, a brain cue here. Last week we did a, I, I did something called the Muslim Brotherhood. We talked about the Muslim Brotherhood, but today I want to focus on Dawah Islam. What is it and why is it dangerous? Many people have never heard the term Dawah, and I didn't until probably about maybe a year ago when I was actually doing a study on the emerging church movement. And I uh, started reading some stuff um, regarding dangerous theology, and I came across the term Dawah in Islam. And what Dawah in Islam is, it, it usually denotes the preaching of Islam. I am an evangelist. I I love to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the Islamic evangelism. Uh, Dawah literally means issuing a summons or making an invitation, being the active participle in a verb meaning variously to summon or to invite. A Muslim who practices Dawah or 
uh, either as a religious worker or in a volunteer community effort is called a dia or a, a pluridua or a dia. I've also heard um, di, a dia. It's uh, just how different forms of that word. Um, it's a person who invites people to understand Islam through a dial. A dialogical process and may be categorized in some cases as the Islam equivalent of a missionary as one who invites people to the faith, to prayer, or to Islamic life. Why am I saying this is dangerous? I'm sure that uh, as a Christian, a lot of people who uh, hate Christianity would consider me to be dangerous uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm calling them dangerous because what is happening with Islam is they are ready to conquer the world. They believe that this is their time. This is their window. Iran has been uh, uh, predicting and promoting and prophesying the coming of the 12th Imam, which is the last uh, Messiah or the final Messiah uh, coming to return to bring peace and justice on the earth. And... They believe that uh, he will come in the midst of chaos. I will do a show where it talks about, uh, maybe my next show, I will talk about the Iranian revolution in the 12th Imam. I also will do a show called uh, Muhammad and the Antichrist. And we'll see how some of the uh, prophecies of revelation could possibly be uh, applied to Islam. I've been studying uh, the last days and revelation since I was 15 years old, and that was about 30 years ago, 35, yeah, 30 years ago. I'm going to put myself older than I am. And I remember that there's a lot of things going on at that time. But I never really saw it as a particular people or a people group. I thought I saw it as deception in the 80s. The New Age movement was big. I never really pinpointed or thought I could pinpoint. I know I heard stories of of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic. Um, I actually this is this is so funny. I actually did a paper called uh, in creative writing. I don't remember what I titled it because I no longer have it. But what we had to do in creative writing is put some letters together. There were supposed to be three people who were writing letters, and you put and you have to create a story with those letters. And in the the end, was supposed to tell you why they're all together in one spot. And I actually did it on the Book of Revelation, and I did it on the Beast and the False Prophet and the Antichrist. And it's quite interesting because I put the um, Antichrist as the Pope and I put uh, the false prophet as some Arab person in the Middle East. And then I put the beast as someone here in leadership in America. I don't necessarily believe that anymore, but I think that's quite 
funny that I actually did something like that and put that together because I know there are theories out there right now that are kind are concluding that I do not have those kind of conclusions today. The more I study Islam, the more I think that Islam is going to play a tremendously important role in the last days. Hopefully, as we go on with this series, that you will find that to be true as well. Now, in the Quran, the term adawa was uh, has other senses. Now, in Surah, which is one of the holy books of uh, of the Islamic faith, thirty twenty five of the Quran, it denotes the call to to the dead to rise on the day of judgment. When used in the Quran, it generally refers to Allah in Allah's invitation to live according to his will. Thus, when used in the first century of Islam, it increasingly referred to the content of that message and was sometimes used interchangeably with Sharia and Din. So, Dawah has a sense of proclamation, of promotion, of missionary, of establishing the laws of God. They also call it the kingdom of God. We hear that in, in Christianity is the kingdom of God. They call this the kingdom of Allah or the kingdom of God. Uh, Dawah is also described as the duty to actively encourage fellow Muslims in pursuance of greater piety in all aspects of their lives. A definition which uh, has become central to contemporary Islamic thought. Now, what is the purpose of Dawah? In Islamic theology, the purpose of Dawah is to invite people, both Muslims and non-Muslims, to understand the worship of Allah, as expressed in the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, as well as to inform them about Muhammad. So it is a great push to... Uh, get people to understand it. Now, what we're doing in the United States and what we're doing in the world, because so many people fear jihad in the, the violent side of Islam, uh, we are actually now helping them promote Islam. We, by speaking well of them, by giving them a platform to speak from, we are actually uh, spreading da'wah. Islam. We are participating in the active missionary work in our uh, lack of confrontation. Because we don't confront it, we encourage it. And we set forth a pattern where they get to define, well, of course, they're going to define what they believe, but it gives them a platform to to uh, describe Islam in the way that they want to. And social jihad has to do with uh, uh, socially implementing it into society. It's in the political, economic, uh, social. Uh, it's in how you dress. It's all aspects of life. And they are, try they are uh, actually uh, moving forward quickly to establish Islamic law, Islamic uh, patterns of behavior, Islamic rights, especially in the United States of America where I am speaking from. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Dawah produces converts to in 
Islam, which in turn grows the strength of the Muslim Ummah. Now, the Ummah means uh, community, and it specifically means the Islamic community or the Muslim community. So when you hear Ummah, that is the close-knit community of the Islamic faith. It does not include anyone outside of that, but they want to rope other people into that to submit to Islam. Dawah or call towards Allah is is the means by which the Islamic prophet Muhammad spread the message of the Quran to mankind. After Muhammad, his followers or Ummah, his his uh, community, uh, they assume the responsibility of Dawah to the people of their times. They convey the message of the Quran by providing information and why and how the Quran preaches monotheism. Now, it's interesting in the United States, they are their one of their big goals is to promote monotheism and they believe that Christianity does not believe in monotheism because we believe in a trinity. And so uh <clears throat> they they believe that we do not understand and that we uh have three gods. Now before we go into more of what this is, I had, you know, I really, I have a book that I printed out or or an article, I guess I'd say, a piece of what is called uh, the Dawa program, and it's by Shamin Asitiki. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but it's 130 pages long, and it's all about uh, what it means to have uh, Dawah in the United States and what their implement, implementation is. And they're doing a social jihad right now, which is not violent yet. And they don't do that until they're in power. When they get in power or if they have the opening like they're having in Egypt and Libya and the Middle East, they press forward. And if they can do it... Um, do quietly they will if they can't they'll do it with violence and you see that in the two countries of Egypt and you see it in Libya and how they contrast they're doing the same thing and many people don't understand what's going on there and I'm going to give you an idea of what's going on there um <clears throat> What is happening there is they're trying to unite all the Islamic countries because what they feel is they host name of Barak, who is a dictator, uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, a dictator. They claim to be Islamic from uh, a standpoint of speaking. They go on television to say that they're Islamic, but they do not follow jihad. They do not follow the codes of Islam. They are not sincere in their faith, and they're just acting. So they call them hypocrites. And what they want to do, and this is what they, they're required to do, is to oust these leaders. And I, I, I want to give you an understanding of jihad so you can understand what it means for them to do Dawah Islam or to evangelize and to do missionary work. But unless we can understand these aspects of their faith, we're never going to understand uh, really what their intentions are for their missionary work. 
I've got this uh, particular information from a website called Understanding Jihad, History, Goals, and Tactics. And I want to share this with you because I thought it was it was quite enlightening. Now, the primary meaning of the Arabic word jihad is the waging of war against the enemies of Islam. It can also refer to the struggle between good and evil within individual souls. This metaphorical understanding of jihad was developed by the Sufis, the Muslim mystics, in the 9th century AD based on a hadith, which is which is oral tradition, of the Prophet Muhammad. On the basis of this hadith, hadith, some people say, spiritual jihad was termed the greater jihad, al-jihad al-akbar, while jihad on the battlefront was termed the lesser jihad, al-jihad al-askar. A standard 11th grade textbook used in Jordan and the Palestinian Authority makes jihad's meaning, meaning plain for its student readers. Jihad is the Islamic equivalent to the word war among the other nations. The difference is that jihad is is war for the sake of noble and exalted goals and for the sake of Allah. Whereas other nations, wars are wars of evil for the sake of occupying land and seizing natural resources and for other materialistic goals and base aspirations. Now they're going to, they are accusing and they don't accuse this uh, uh, publicly, but but they are actually stating it in what they're doing, that uh, Muammar Gaddafi and uh, Mum, uh, Hosni Mubarak are those who are materialistic and has goals and aspirations for themselves as dic- dictators and not for Allah. And that's why they feel that they need to be ousted out of their, their government. To continue... To properly understand the place of jihad in the Muslim worldview, it is important to keep in mind that Islam has been, from its very beginning, not only a religion, but a political community. The nation of Islam, Umat al-Islam, Muhammad, was not merely a prophet communicating the word of God, but a political leader and a military commander. Hence, any victory by the army of a Muslim state over a non-Muslim is perceived as a victory for Islam itself. According to Islam, Allah promised the Muslims victory and superiority over all religions worldwide. Allah validated this message with the Battle of Badr in Ramadan of 624 AD, when 300 Muslim warriors under Muhammad's command vanquished the 950-strong army of the Quraysh tribe a military feat which played a crucial role in shaping the Islamic consciousness. This victory was not an isolated event. Rather, it was the harbinger of an impressive series of victories that led the rise of a Muslim empire stretching from India to the Atlantic Ocean. The Prophet Muhammad's assertion that Islam is superior and cannot be surpassed reflects the Muslim sense of superiority and this self-perception remained unshaken for many centuries, even when the political and military reality no longer supported it. According to the traditional Muslim outlook, humanity is divided into two groups, the followers of Islam who are called believers and non-Muslims who are called infidels. So did you get that? 
they're they're believers, so you're either it's kind of like Jew and Gentile. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Either you're a believer in Islam or you're an infidel. And they do not consider infidels innocent. That's why they can uh, terrorize innocent people because they don't feel that they are innocent. According to their religion, they are actually not. They are evildoers. And then, then they describe that even further. It is the duty of the Muslims to propagate the one true faith, Islam, throughout the world. Should the infidels refuse to embrace Islam, jihad is the means to be used to vanquish them. Now, for those who don't believe that Islam is is uh, violent and is is ready to destroy and kill those who do not believe in Islam, this is actually stating that they are. Among the infidels, Islam distinguishes between two main groups. Now, you listen to this very carefully because among infidels, now, okay, you think of the group of infidels. You and I, if you, especially if we're Christian, we're infidels. But all all believers are infidels. But they divide these infidels into two groups, idolaters or polytheists, on the one hand, and the people of the book, Jews and Christians, on the other. So did you hear that? Polytheists um, and idolaters on one side and people of the book, Jews and Christians, on the other side. Those are the two groups. Uh, the people of the book are granted special status in Islam. I bet, I bet you haven't really heard that much in what I've been talking about, but I, I, I want you to listen to this very carefully. What is that special status? Uh, their fate is different from that of the polytheist infidels. The Muslims are commanded to fight the people of, of the book until either they either accept Islam or agree to pay the poll tax. It's, uh, I don't know how you say it in, in Arabic, but jizah, I think, is how you say it. The basis for dealing with them is laid down in the Quran. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth of the people of the book until they pay the jizah out of hand in a state of submission. That's in the Quran 9. Verse 29, by paying the dujah, the people of the book indicate that they submit to Muslim rule and accept the status of, of protective people called the Arabic Allah Adimi. Now, why I want you to listen to that carefully is because, you know, I I know that they will destroy Christians if we do not believe they will kill us. That's exactly what they're going to do. Because we have a history, or Christians, I don't know, none, I'm not assuming that everybody listening to this program today are Christians, but those of us who are Christians, I claim to be a Christian, uh, will be annihilated along with the infidels. But what their goal is, though, is not to annihilate us necessarily, because they know that when we die, we're going to, our, our belief is to go to heaven and be with, uh, you know, have our reward in heaven. What they want us to do, and they want to see us submit to Allah and to God. Now, can you see something very significant here as far as the 
the prophecy of the last days. Why are Muslims, and I've been asking this question, why are Muslim in, Muslims interesting in allowing Christians and Jews to live, at least for a time? If a Christian dies, they have their reward in heaven, but if a Christian rejects Jesus, he has lost his reward. Did you hear that? If we are fighting against principalities and powers, and that the author of all world religions who are uh, against Jesus or not following Jesus, if Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through him. Christians have the way. Now, Muslims believe they have the way too, but we are in contrast here. A huge contrast. And what is Islam is saying, you're going to submit and pay the poll tax and you will be able to live and as long as you submit to the rule of Islam and accept them as the superior religion on the face of the earth. Now, can you see something kind of developing here? Can you see that in the last day when the Antichrist does come, and I'm just get, I'm just going to throw this out at you, that the Antichrist is going to make everyone get a mark on their hand and their feet, or in the hand, their their hands and their forehead, either or. And it actually says in the Islamic text. And I don't want to get into this right now because I think it's really great for another show. But that uh, they actually believe that a mark is going to be handed out by the last imam. And so, um, <clears throat> what they want to do is they want us to submit to Islam. And so, I can kind of see how it plays into prophecy that uh, it says, Revelation, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of his name. Now, if Satan is the author of Islam, if he is the one behind Islam, then you know that he wants every Christian to lose their reward and to be in hell with him. Every human being he wants there. But he's especially at war with us as as Christians. This calls for wisdom, it says in Revelation 13, 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for the man's number. His number is 666. And I'm not going to go into anything what I think about that. But Revelation 14.1 then says, I looked and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation 14.9-12 through 12 says, And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. I am throwing out there that the reason why they have 
allowed Christians to remain alive if they pay a poll tax and submit to, to Islam is because in doing so, they defeat Christians in the long run. They defeat them completely. And uh, they ha- we if we are defeated in that way, we will uh, end up in God's wrath. Just as humanity is divided into believers and infidels, the world itself is also divided into the abode of Islam, Dar Allah Islam, namely the religion under Muslim rule, and the abode of war, Dar Allah Arab, referring to all lands not yet under Muslim rule, which must be conquered by the sword through jihad. So did you hear that? Not only are they wanting to get Christians, they want to conquer and rule the world. And that is their intention. That is their mission, Mission that is their their goal. Jihad is not regarded as a personal obligation incumbent upon every... Uh, jihad is not, is not regarded as a personal obligation for Adin incumbent upon every Muslim. According to the Sharia Islamic law, jihad is a collective duty of the Muslim nation or community as a whole, it is the Muslim ruler who decides when and against whom to declare jihad. When a Muslim ruler declares jihad, it becomes a personal obligation for those who he orders to take part in the war. There is only one situation in which jihad becomes a personal obligation of each and every Muslim, even without an order from the Muslim leadership, namely when non-Muslims attack Muslims or invade Muslim con- a Muslim country. Osama bin Laden and the adherents of extremist Islam claim that this is the situation today, that Islam is under attack both physically and ideologically by the infidels who are invading the lands of Islam which would include Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Chechnya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Therefore, they maintain that waging jihad has become a personal obligation incumbent upon all Muslims. Jihad is closely linked to the concept of self-sacrifice in battle for the sake of Allah, shahada. Shahada means martyrdom, and any Muslim who is killed in the course of war against non-Muslims is a shahid, a, a martyr. Actively pursuing jihad and seeking a martyr's death, it's a shahid, is especially laudable. The Quran does not merely promise the martyr a reward in the world to come. A number of surahs in the Quran contain descriptions of the pleasures of paradise, food and drink and beautiful women. The Muslim traditionists and commentaries greatly elaborate on these descriptions, providing, for example, details about the physical and spiritual characteristics of the black-eyed virgins of paradise. Every man who enters paradise is rewarded with 72 such brides. The distinction of martyrs compared to other Muslims lies primarily in the fact that they are guaranteed the privilege of paradise. So, if you want to go straight to heaven, let's be a martyr. That is your free ticket. And they definitely do not want to give that to Christians. They'd rather make Christians submit to Islam than to give them martyrdom so that they can go straight to their paradise in which we say when we die, we are going to be with Jesus. But if they have to, they will. They will kill us if we refuse to submit.
The act of falling in battle for the sake of Allah washes away every violation of sin they have committed during their lives. The shahid enters paradise immediately without enduring the torments of the grave. And I <clears throat> read a book once that talked about, it was in the Son of Hamas uh, by uh, Mosab Yusuf, um, wait, Yusuf, Mosab Hussein Yusuf, and he is the son of his father is one of the Hamas leaders. He told a story about when he was little, um, there was a graveyard across where they lived, and when he was little, he would he would see um, uh, people get buried quite a bit because I guess it was the only uh, graveyard in the city, and so it was it was quite busy. And one day he got curious and he went over there and and he heard the imam speaking about the man who had died and said that that um, uh, Muhammad will ask him a few questions and if he doesn't answer them correctly then he is going to be tortured for seven days and then he is going to be asked again and you will hear his cries and torments coming up from the grave well he was quite traumatized by that and went home and you know he expected that this man would be suffering once he got buried <clears throat> and went home and asked his mother, said, Mom, why couldn't I hear it? Or when when do they start when will I start hearing this man's turmoil and suffering? And his mom said only animals could hear it. And and that seemed to satisfy him for the time. But when it talks about um the torments of the grave, that's what they mean. Whereas ordinary Muslims who does not, not have the privilege of dying as a martyr must wait for the day of judgment in order to get their reward. Islamic Jihad today has two chief goals, both global. One of these is to wage war against the world's leading infidel power, the U.S., and all of its allies, particularly Israel. The other goal is to topple the evil regimes in the Muslim countries because their leaders are only outwardly Muslim. It is thus a religious obligation to fight them, dispose them, and establish a truly Islamic regime in their place. Now, people are thinking that, uh, oh, yay, it's democracy happening and revival happening in the Middle East. That is not what's happening. What is happening? Yeah, well, it's a revival for Islam. It's a revolution. They don't call it a revival. They call it a revolution. But we don't understand Islam. We are not understanding what's going on. And I hear this from people from the pulpit, preachers from the pulpit. I hear this from the church people in the church saying, wow, look at what is happening in, happening in the Middle East. It could be a very good thing. But as you hear here, their goal is to establish, their goal is to topple the evil regimes in the Muslim countries because their leaders are only outwardly Muslim. Hosni Mubarak and uh, and uh, uh, Gaddafi are outwardly Muslim. And a lot of the leaders in the countries that they're rising up against are outwardly Muslim. And guess who is heading up the front is the bro- Muslim Brotherhood who is umbrellaed over is all these little fractions of groups that are rising up. The rebels, we as the United States are supporting Islamic rebels who in turn will destroy us. That's their goal. Their goal is 
is uh, to wage war against the world's leading infidel power, which is the U.S., and all of its allies, and particularly Israel. That is their goal. It is thus a religious obligation to fight them, dispose them, and establish a truly Islamic regime in their place is what they want to do, both infidels of the U.S. and the ones they claim who are are just religious by name, outwardly Muslim. The ultimate goal of jihad is to impose Islamic Islam on the entire world as the only true religion. And this is part of Dawah. This is the later part of Dawah. The social part of Dawah, the beginning part of Dawah, is full of deception. And um, uh, if you've gone to my Facebook page, you would see that I actually have a um, a video up that talks about... Um, uh, how to debate a Christian. And I'm not sure how true this is. I've done a little bit of research. So I know uh, uh, the Alumni Jihad University, Pakistan, does exist. I haven't found Aisha Ahmed, who is supposedly the uh, one who actually wrote this. But uh, <clears throat> he, sa- he says, we live... He- it's a claim here we live in Kerfer County and daily we have to face infidels who criticize Islam and our prophet and who want to debate us in an Islamic country if someone did that we all we all all we have to do is to announce loudly what he said and the rest is taken care of by an angry mob the critic is lynched in no time end of story however here we do not have the luxury yet and he's talking about being in the united states this is out of new york inshallah is foreseeable in foreseeable future after is in the foreseeable future after we grow by conversions um and uh with legal and illegal immigrants and procreation that is part of the dawa uh, Evangelism, too, is procreation, is to establish themselves in another country and to procreate, to have more children. And we in the West are having less children, and they're having more. So they're going to use our democracy to outvote us in about 30 years. Well, it's happening now. That's what it's happening in England, and it's happening in Europe. Uh, because <clears throat> Inshallah will become the majority and not have to face this problem on a daily basis. So he gives some advice here in how to witness to uh, Christians. He says, uh, a popular, popular question is why Islam calls for a death of Islamic critics and apostates. And he says they insist that their information is false. A quote, Ayah, to you, your religion, and to me, my religion. And two, to answer um, them, Islam, to answer Islam spread with a sword, say that it is a big lie spread by Jews and Hindus, that the Quran clearly says there is no compulsion in religion. If someone quotes violent ayahs from Quran, accuse him of quoting ayahs in bits and pieces and cherry-picking. If he then quotes full ayahs and and ayahs before and after, then insist that the translation is wrong. If he brings ten different translations, then say, cor- say correct meanings can be understood only by reading the Quran in Arabic. 
if he happens to be well-versed in Arabic language, then insist that those ayahs don't mean what they appear to mean as they are allegor- have allegorical meanings. If he is adamant, then say you cannot understand those ayahs and, it, and its context without reading hadith or sirah. If he shows up with the hadiths and sirahs in his hand and quotes the context of violence ayahs by referring to hadiths or prophets, rapes or robberies, robberies, assassination and genocides, then insist that all hadiths and sirahs are heresy and are false and only true and the only truth is in the Quran. If he says the Quran is man made do- a man made document and wants proof of its divinity, then refer to the sciences in the Quran and the book written by Doctor Bakal confirming the sciences in our holy book. You can also quote the Mahatma Gandhi that Mahatma Gandhi read the Quran daily and also spoke highly of it. If he says that the Bakal was on Saudi payroll and that no and that nor he nor Gandhi ever changed their religion religions and that Bakal was cha- was challenged and proven wrong by many experts, then cha- challenge him to ask his experts to debate Islamic Islamics like Zakir Naik, and now he is a imam that you can get on YouTube. So his name is spelled Z-A-K-I-R N-A-I-K. He's quite an interesting guy to listen to, and I have one of his clips on my uh, Facebook page. If the past still hangs on, hangs around, then change the topic and find faults in other religions and their books. If he continues, then use personal text and insult him by calling him a Jewish a-hole, a Chinese pig, or a Hindu dog. If that does not frustrate him, then ask him how much he is being paid by the Jews to throw dirt on al-Islam. If he still does not stop, then run for his, his mother sister and use very filthy language if he is still stubborn and wants to continue then curse him like burn in in hell you will repent on the last day Allah will get you in your grave etc when all of the above has failed threaten him with bodily harm and end the debate by drum beating and announcing that you won the debate hands down because the Quran is the word of Allah if possible announce about this debate in an Islamic website and that you had won it handedly. Much announcements do wonders for the imam of Muslim website readers and for da'wah operations in prisons to convince low IQ prisoners of the truth of al-Islam. Now, whether that is true or not, some some who have encountered uh, a debate with Islam people with Islam, you do kind of go on a rabbit trail. I've witnessed to them. And they do take you on a rabbit trail. And if you don't know one thing, they'll go to another and they'll go to another and they'll go to another because they want to win the debate. But we as Christians, we need to know how to defend our faith. We need to know how to uh, present the gospel to these to to those who are in the Islamic faith, we need to know how to challenge them actually to this point to where they have to keep going uh, further and further. But there is a truth about uh, what I just um, said to you is that it is part, it is ordered in the Quran that it is okay to lie about things when you are in social jihad in order to uh, promote 
the end means. In other words, <clears throat> it's okay to to not be uh, very honest and to be deceptive and then not to tell the truth until Islam is in power. And once Islam gets into power, then Islam will crush everything underneath him. And once Islam is in power, once Islam has the upper hand, then you have to tell the truth and you can no longer lie. That is the truth. Now, one of the historical things that we need to be aware of and that might help you to understand Islam is um, understanding some of their history. And I want to see how how much I can uh, share with you in this. Uh, the Islamic uh, people came from the Karajites. Um, <clears throat> much of the excesses and extremism that we observe today may be understood in terms of the origins and unfolding of the Karajism during the first few centuries of Islam. Now, while a number of writers, both past and present, are of the opinion that this sect is extinct, Others are of the view that it is not. I share the latter view. The influences of this sect have always been present in different guises and varying degrees throughout the history of Islam. And as I study it, I'm finding that uh, the habits that they have gained from this tribal people are actually uh, a part of their warrior, the way they wore the way they uh, do battle, the way they do jihad. Uh, so you see a lot of reflection of this tribe in uh, the the people today. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it it was evident to said. Sayyidina Ali, that there theirs was a political agenda, agenda that was inspired by an ill-conceived sense of political isolationism owing to their Bedouin status. The spirit of Islam, as yet, has not served to detribalize them. And that's why you see all these sects and groups and stuff and how they war against each other. But in the last days, they are told to draw together. They are to set their tribal aspects Aside, and you will see them come together as a strong front in revolution to conquer the earth. Now, one thing that I don't know how many people remember, but when Britain uh, was over Palestine, they actually uh, used these tribal groups and broke them up. And sometimes with their conflicts among them, they, they would divide them on purpose. And the reason that, that the the United Kingdom did this was uh, so that they would not unite together and become a strong front. If you can remember back in history, the Crusades were the ones, you know, I'm not favorable to the Crusades and what actually happened there, um, except for one thing. The Crusades stopped Islam from um, gaining Europe way back in uh, history. Yeah, Islam was trying to conquer the world then, <clears throat> and the Crusades actually held them back. And the United King, Kingdom, being in that area, actually understood Islam, that these Islamic tribal people had to be broken up to keep them from uniting and and conquering again. But we are seeing them come back together. And and I want to I want to show you a little bit of something that uh, 
is very important for you to uh, take in account. In 1919, the Egyptians united together in a new way against the British. Uh, so that is when it actually started in 1990, 1919. So <clears throat> it was in this later century that the Islam tribal people were starting to unite together in a strong front. And it started with Egypt. Uh, both Christians and Muslims stood together. In 1990, the Egyptians united together in a new way against the British. The whole of Egypt, as it were, stood up against the British. There were the students, the workers, the peasants, but most important, the Christians stood side by side with Muslims. Somehow the Christians sensed that their place of belonging was with Muslim Egypt rather than with the Christian colonists. The demonstrations were led by Muslim and Christian religious leaders as they marched arm in arm in the streets of Cairo. It was a clear message to the British that Christians did not need their protection and to the Muslims that cops are authentic Egyptians. So did, and that was out of the rumbling volcano. Now, this is in 1919. Doesn't it sound like what has ha- what happened here just recently in the last few months in Egypt, where you saw Christians and Muslims together uniting together against Hosni Mubarak, one of their own people? Now, <clears throat> why the Christian cops actually united with the Muslims this time is is still a question I have, but the cops are authentic Egyptians, and they are trying to say to the Islam that they are part of Egypt, and they were not being favored by the dictatorship of Mubarak either. So, but the cops are afraid of Islam taking control and power. Uh, the cops were. At this time, when this revolution with Britain happened, the cops were feeling insecure because of the Islamic League that Afghani propagated. They sensed that if the Sharia, which the Muslims were calling for, replaced the Egyptian constitution, then the cops would end up paying taxes as al-Dimah and not as fellow citizens with equal, equal rights. And when they stood up in as you know against british the british they were claiming themselves as the right to be egyptian the islam islamic jihadists had a different reason but it fell short um and you see this history in egypt where uh nazir uh became uh one of the um leaders of of Egypt, and he was actually assassinated on September 28, 1970, uh, by the Muslim sect of the Muslim Brotherhood. The birth of the Muslim Brotherhood was in 1928. And Sadat's death was, Sadat took over for Nazir, and Sadat died October 6, 1982, and he was assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood. So you see that Egypt has has had a history of throwing off their dictators and those in power. Mubarak was actually with Sadat when he was assassinated, and he was put in place of Sadat. And I really feel that this is why Mubarak 
actually stepped down because he 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 loved his life and he knew if he did not that he would be assassinated next. Now, Gaddafi is a different character. He doesn't have the history that Egypt has and he is not going to to go out easily. So he said, I am going to go out with a bang and I'm going to be a martyr. So that's what we're, we're seeing here. But we're seeing a re- revolution. <clears throat> Part of the revolution has to do with... Um, uh, their leaders, um, and I don't have time to really go into them as much, but Hassan Albana is one of the Muslim Brotherhood leaders, and I will, he was one of the main leaders. He was quite clear that his goal was not solely an anti-colonist struggle in Egypt, nor the re- nor the refurbishment of Islam, but rather a world revolution that would establish Islam as the dominant religion in the entire world. So this is back in in the early 1900s when when this revolution was actually starting, but it had a rough start. Now we are, we're seeing it take a hold in a powerful way. Albana says this, we will not stop at this point freeing Egyptian, Egypt from secularism and modern, modern, modernity. Sorry, can't even say that. But will pursue this evil force to its own lands, invade its western heartland, and struggle to overcome it until all the world shouts by the name of the prophet and the teachings of Islam spread throughout the world. Only then will Muslims achieve their fundamental goal, and all religion will be exclusively for Allah. And the key themes of radical Islamism and jihadism were reiterated in numerous quotes by Albana, including silent jihad. In traditional Islam, jihad, which means struggle, was divided into the greater jihad and the inner struggle to um, achieve sanctity and religious truth. And a lesser jihad war against enemies of Islam is jihad musala. Abana reversed the priorities. He re- relegated inner spiritual struggle to jihad al-Asghar, the lesser jihad, and elevated violent war against enemies of Islam to jihad, jihad al-Akbar, the great jihad. In his stance on this point is explicit, and Albana wrote, Many Muslims today mistakenly believe that fighting the enemy is jihad al-Asghar, a lesser jihad, and that fighting one's ego is jihad akbar, a greater jihad. The following narration, Asar, is quoted as proof. We have returned from the lesser jihad to embark on the greater jihad. They said, what is the greater jihad? He said, the jihad of the heart, or the jihad against one's ego. This narration is used by some to lessen the importance of fighting, to discourage any preparation for combat, and to deter any offering of jihad in Allah's way. This narration is not a shahi sound tradition. So they're saying that they switched this inner struggle, which you know you hear peaceful is uh, peaceful Muslims say that jihad actually means the inner struggle, but. Albana, who is one of the main people of this revolution, said, "No, we're switching it. It is Al Akbar, which is the is the the great struggle, and this is what we have to take for for Allah." He, the cult of martyrdom. Albana wrote this: 
my brothers, the Ummah, that that knows how to die a noble and honorable death is granted an exalted life in this world and eternal felicity in the next. Degradation and dishonor are the results of the love of this world and the fear of death. Therefore, prepare for jihad and be the lovers of death. Life itself shall come searching after you. My brother, you should know that one day you will face death, and this ominous event can only occur once. If you suffer on this occasion in the way of Allah, it will be to your benefit in this world and your reward in the next. So the supremacy of Islam Islam must dominate, and it is not to be dominated. Restoration of the lost caliphate is the chief immediate political goal of the Islamic movement. The decadence and the imminent demise of the West, the civilization of the West, which was brilliant by virtue of its scientific perfection for a long time, and which subjugated the whole world with its products of the science is to its states and nations is now bankrupt and in decline. This is what Albana is saying. Now, you can say that for today especially. Anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. The Jews are the agents of change and westernization and responsible for the decline of the West as well as Islam. This was not a theme in the Muslim or in the Arab world. The other leader which is a Sayyid Quib, Quitib is how you say it, Sayyid Quitib. He lived between 1906 and 1966. Now, he lived pretty much, he was older than Albana, but he didn't have uh, the same kind of persona that Albana did. He he was actually a, uh, caught by the government. Nastir uh, executed him. Uh, uh, Sayyid Quitib was an Egyptian and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood was a prominent Islamist and a revivalist figure whose career spanned the middle decades of, the, of this century. His thought deeply influenced why Mahadi's Didi's revolutionary radicalism falls into the distinct periods. That which occurred before President Nasser detained him in the concentration camp for political enemies. He was eventually ex- executed in 1966. And that which emerged during the so the period of the in, internment, the first expert excerpt comes from the early work Social Justice in Islam, which he wrote in 1949. So he spent a lot of time in prison, and in that time he wrote some pieces, and this is what he said. I'm going to read a couple of what he things that he said, uh, so you get an idea of what he is saying, and he is one of the ones who actually formed a lot of this revolution. So all creation issuing as it does from one absolute universal and active will forms an all-embracing unity in which each individual part is in harmonious order with the remainder. Thus then, all creation is a unity comprising different parts. It has a common origin, a common providence and purpose because it was produced by a single absolute and comprehensive will. So the universe cannot be hostile to life or to man, or can nature, in our modern phrase, to be held by antagonistic men opposed to him, or striving against him. Rather, she is a friend whose purposes are one with those of of life and of mankind, and the task of living beings is not to contend with nature, for they have grown up in her bosom, and she and they together form a part of the single universe which proceeds 
from the single will. Now, if you haven't got that, it's because he was, he was extremely philosophical. For those of you who like philosophy, we'll get what he's saying. Now, he goes on and he says, Mankind today is on the brink of, of a precipice, not because of the danger of complete annihilation, which is hanging over his head, this being just a symptom and not the real disease, but because humanity is devoid of those vital values which are necessary not only for its healthy development, but also for its real progress. Even the Western world realizes that Western civilization is unable to present any healthy values for the guidance of mankind. It knows that it does not possess anything which will satisfy its own conscience and justify its existence. It is essential for a mankind to have a, a new leadership. It is necessary for the new leadership to preserve and develop the material fruits of the creative gen genus of Europe and also to provide mankind with such high ideals and values as have so far remained undiscovered by mankind and which will also acquaint humanity with a way of life which is harmonious with human nature which uh, which positive and construction constructive which is practical Islam is the only system which possesses these values and this way of life. If we look at the sources and the foundations of modern ways of living, it's becoming clear that the whole world is steeped in shahilaya, pagan ignorance of divine guidance. And all the marvelous material comforts and high-level intentions do not diminish this ignorance. The jahilala is based on a rebellion against God's sovereignty on earth. It transfers to God, to man one of the greatest attributes of God, namely sovereignty, and makes some men lords over others. It is not in that simple and primitive form of the ancient Shahilala, but takes the form of claiming that the right to create values, to legislate rules of collective behavior, and to choose any way of life rests with men without regard to what God has prescribed. The result of this rebellion against the authority of God is the opposition of his creatures. The Islamic civilization can take various forms in its material and organizational structure, but the principles and values on which it is based are eternal and unchangeable. These are the worship of God alone, the foundation of human relationships, and the belief of the unity of God, the supremacy of the humanity of man over material things, the development of human values and the control of animistic desires, respect for family, the assumption of the vice regency of God on earth according to his guidance instruction, and instruction, and in all affairs of this vice regency, the rule of God's love, al-Sharia, and the way of life prescribed by him. In the scale of God, the true weight is the weight of faith. If God's market in God's market, the only commodity in demand is the commodity of faith. The highest form of triumph is the victory of, of soul over matter, the victory of belief over pain, and the victory of faith over, over persecution. <clears throat> now, what what he is saying here is that uh, Islam is superior. <clears throat> And I have about 22 minutes left, and I've got so much to share with you. I may have to do a part two on this, but we'll see how I go. 
Now, the Al-Jihad organization, I'm going to share with you one more organization that uh, played a part in the beginning formation of, of the revolution that we see today. Why I'm saying all this is because to understand this in the beginning is to understand their mission, their dawah, and why it is it is dangerous because this is the end result. What I'm reading here is the end result. What they are doing here in the United States doesn't seem like that. But what it it does here is is to establish Islam as the the one who will legislate rules of collective behavior and to choose the way of life that rests on men. Their idea of respecting family is women will have no rights and the abuse of Islam towards women is extremely high. Uh, There are death um, laws for women and I don't have time to go into all the aspects of the problems with women. Being a woman that that doesn't that doesn't appeal to me it makes me afraid. But I'm not I'm not as afraid of being a woman as I am afraid of being a Christian or being um, an infidel. And I will be considered that. So let me do one more group that created this revolution, and then we'll go on to more of what is Adawa doing here in the United States. Al-Jamaa at Al-Islamiyah, the Fundamentalist Association at the universities which were born from the Muslim Brotherhood and were nourished and strengthened by Sadat in the 1970s, grew stronger and turned against the, mother, the Brotherhood and Sadat. So what happened, uh, there was a group called Al-Jihad Organization, and the Muslim Brotherhood at that time wasn't, uh, militant as it is today or as strong as it is today. So an al-Jihad organization created itself uh, from that to do what the Mother Muslim Brotherhood does today. The impact of the universities and the students where it started with young people in the universities and outside gave them confidence to declare themselves as underground organized groups with separate identities for the purpose of establishing an Islamic revolution through the use of force. Started with small groups coming together saying, we want to do a revolution, we are establishing Islam, and we are going to go through and do it by force. Um, and this is in Egypt. I'm back in Egypt. Uh, and why I'm using Egypt as a uh, visual picture for you is because this is what's on our news today. And this is what's coming to the United States. This is what's coming to the world. This is what's coming to Europe. And this, to them, they're bringing the last imam to the forefront. And why this all goes with Bible prophecy as we continue with our shows and as I continue to to show you some of these things, you're going to put hopefully put this all together and you're going to see the big picture because if we don't understand our past, we're not going to understand our present and we're going to repeat it, that which we are. Ignorance is what is actually putting us in a very dangerous position right now and Islam is not ignorant. On one of those groups... One of the groups of the Al-Jihad organization was, they called that number one, 
Um, 70 of its members were arrested in October of 1979. Now, that wasn't very long ago, in January of 1980. They were accused of attacking churches and stirring religious sectarianism between cops and Muslims for the purpose of creating a disturbance in the country, paving the way for the establishment of an Islamic revolution. So they were starting in 1979 to try to, try to stir the people. You see this on you saw this on on the night that or the nights that they they uh, were being stirred. People say the Muslim Brotherhood wasn't much very much part of it. Excuse me, I gotta take a drink. But they were. This has been going on for a long time now, and they're waiting for their window. And this was their window. Al Jihad number two. So, so what happened? They were all arrested in seventy nine eighty, and then Al Jihad number two was led by Salem Rahal. Its strategy was to form cell groups within the military ranks for the purpose of taking over the country and establishing an Islamic revolution. So, her, first they're staring at the people and the cops against the Muslims. Stirring up the religious sectarianism, this group was actually forming cell groups within the military ranks to bring about this Islamic revolution. Soon after its formation, members of this group were arrested and Al Jihad number two was dissolved. Al Jihad number three was led by Faraj and Zumra. They wanted to follow the Iranian revolution as a model. The Islamic revolution they believed would come into existence as a result of mobilizing the masses and stirring them up to get into the streets to demand the regime to resign. Wait a minute. This sounds like Egypt today. This sounds like what's happening today. But this was in 1981. That was, what, 20-some years ago? Uh... 25, at least 25 years ago, more than that, maybe 30 years ago. Now you see that they're doing it here in Egypt. And now you see all these other countries following suit because they say now is the time. And they're actually succeeding in the revolution. Let me continue. The Islamic revolution, they believed, would come into existence as in a into existence as a result of mobilizing the masses and stirring them up to get into the streets to demand the regime to resign. From October to December of 1981, all the leaders and 30 members of the Al-Shahad number three were arrested and the Al-Shahad of Faraj and Zamra as an organized group was terminated. This third of Al-Jihad group was the most famous and the most powerful of all the groups that splintered from Al-Jamaa and Al-Islamiyah. The reasons for its strength, strength were their clear-cut ideology, its organizational structure, and its courage to put into action what is what it believed in. And they went as a model of the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran. So now Iran is actually leading this revolution today. Sayyid Quib's signpost on the road did a, you know, that was, that did a lot for, uh, 
promoting this revolution. In 1987, the youth were more attracted to the radical tendencies of the fundamentalist movement. However, the core of the society still believes that an Islamic state will sooner or later fall into the lap of the Muslim Brotherhood as the Islamization of the nation comes to full maturity and fruition. Now it's falling in their laps. And we think they're having a de- you know democracy unfold in their country, which they're not. They're using democracy to throw out their leaders, to establish the Muslim caliphate, to unite as a strong front, to spread dawah, Islam, to spread, to evangelize, to bring missions, to conquer all over the earth. The new Muslim Brotherhood is one is one type of fundamentalism in Egypt. The other type is seen through the existence of more than 40 splinter groups of militant fundamentalism. All of these groups are offshoots from the Muslim Brotherhood, and they are a branch from the second main branch, who is Sayyid Qutb, the master, the philosopher, the thinker, and the model, and the martyr. Now, I am going to spend a little bit of time, hopefully I'll get through some of this so you can see what kind of organization they are actually doing here in the United States. The importance of Dawa in America and our obligation. This is uh, off of Summon, a sequitive in New York. It is off of a site, Islamic site. Um, all you have to do is put the importance of Dawa in America and our obligation. Let us first clearly understand as what is Dawa Ilala. Excuse me. What is Dawa? Dawa Ilala? And I don't know if I'm saying that right. D-I for short, it means not an end. The end is and was always to be the deen of Allah, to get the deen of Allah introduced. That is the Dawa. The deen is someone who will teach what Dawa is. Spread and establish ultimately in the body politics of the country. It means Dawa ilala is an organized a disciplined, a determined, and a continuous effort by individuals and a team of conscious Muslims and Muslima known in the ter- terminology of the Quran as the Dia Ilala. Those are people who are spreading Dawah Islam, spreading Islam as a missionary effort. Dawah is not only just distributing flyers or feelers occasionally or seasonally at some malls, marketplaces, busy streets, parks, and political rallies and feeling satisfied that the assignment of DI or uh, Dawah Ilala has been completed. It is all extensive Dawah work. Through this process, there is no certainty that it would yield the desired results and produce the team of followers of Islam or the adherents who will sacrifice for Allah's deen. That is the leader, teacher. An example, if a stone is thrown in a pond or river or or ocean, it would create a ripple. Where would it end? It would end at the bank of a river, pond, or or ocean. Effort of Dawah Ilala will culminate when it engulfs the entire human race. Hence, Dawah effort must be carried out to its logical conclusion. 
Here's the importance of the terms, organized, disciplined, determined, and continuous efforts be explained for better understanding the DAWA fieldwork. This is, they have a whole training manual, just like we train missionaries to go overseas. They are training their people here in the United States how to organize, to get organized, to create a strong front and they're doing it all within society right now. They're quiet right now. But just like now in Europe where thing, the Islam is rising up, this is what they call the taqiyah, where they, they blend into society and they sit quietly until just the right time when they will stand up and start proclaiming Islam and uh, going into the Allah Akbar the greater jihad. This is the lesser jihad right here. But it's very important. Hadith of Rasulullah, if they, the idolaters of Mecca, put sun on my right hand and moon on my left, I will not give up this work until Allah's deen becomes dominant or I give up my life in that pursuit. See the vibrating force of his de determination, continuity, of efforts and clarity of goal in his approach and effort. If anyone of us sitting here bursting with a zima, uh, <clears throat> let me move on, move on a little further down so you can understand what it's saying. In the, um, however, I have seen this azima, and I couldn't find exactly what that means on the faces of many of our humble workers around the country, but the leadership could not give them the sense of direction as what to do and how to do it. It is only the redeeming feature in ICNA setup, and that's the Islamic Circle of North American America Muslim Students Association. Intensive Dawah efforts. Dawah activities attain perfection only through intensive Dawah efforts. The connotation of intensive Dawah program is to develop personal contact on person-to-person -person basis with set targets in and around your neighborhood, at job places and around a masjid, which is a place of prostration and a place of worship like a mosque. The personal contact program at the individual level must continue at a regular intervals till the con contactee becomes the follower of Islam or commits to be involved in dawah activities or shows some different attitude to dawah ilallah. In that case, a dai must withdraw respectfully to pursue for some other time while keeping the personal contact alive and be, brings others under its targeted personal contact plan. This is the essence of dawa dawa alala or proclamation. That's what dawa proclamation, and that's what I'll start calling it, so you can hear it. Both are complementary to each other. Extensive dawa programs are the recruiting nucleus, while the intensive personal contact program is to bring the newfound individuals to the fold of Islam through continuous persuasion, dialogue, and discussion. The extensive dawah program is to make a general introduction of Islam to masses while the intensive dawah context will produce the team of workers, or the dawis, the purpose of which the Islamic movement is launched. Hence, depending just on extensive programs and ignoring the 
intensive Dawa contact program would negate our Dawa efforts. Rasulullah, which is the apostle, used both by the methods of Dawa proclamation. Prerequisites for Dawa proclamation. Dawa efforts in America in American perspective or elsewhere in the world must meet the following prerequisites. If we ignore them, we will never succeed in discharging our obligation towards imakutudin, which means the process of, toward do, indoctrination in this country. So it says, if we ignore them, we will never succeed in charging our obligation towards the process of to, indoctrination in this country. Dawa efforts are going everywhere in the USA, but the desired results are not forthcoming or coming at uh, snail speed. The main reason is that our Dawis are not com- competent or not fully equipped for Dawa work in this country. They lack their training and tarbiya, which is education and upbringing. As such, they are shy to go in the field and meet the people. The institutions, the Islamic organizations, and individuals who are interested in a Dawah proclamation are desirous to be successful in their Dawah efforts, are failing to equip their workers with, with or meet these prerequisites. Sorry. One of the pro- these prerequisites are part of the problem. They say clarify clarity of vision and con- conviction, what to do and how to do it. Um, the goal will never change. The Islamic leadership will be the model for the workers. That would be the prime most asset of the movement. Now, uh, these are some of the things that they're working on that they're saying that needs to be requ- requisite. You need to have a clarity of vision and conviction, what to do and how to do it. We are to struggle for Allah's deen in the way of Rasala, or of the apostle, did during his lifetime. So what they want to do is establish their goals, and their goals will never change. And we read that in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. What is happening there is just further down the road. This is now an intensive work that they're doing. The other prerequisites uh, is acquiring workers' working knowledge of Islam. Um, through extensive study program of the Quran, Hadith, Sirah, of Rasulullah, the Apostle, Basic Fiqh, which is the Islamic jurisprudence, the expansion of the Shar- Sharid Islamic law based on the Quran and Sunnah, Islamic history of at least for at least first 150 years in Islamic literature covering its social, economic, and political structure. So what I'm sharing with you about Egypt all the way back to 1900s, they're actually going back further so that they can understand their history and they can see how it's uh, worked out in the past and where they're going with their mission. The Islamic organization will guide the individual workers as what to study and from where through individual and group study programs. Number three, so they have clarity of vision and conviction. Number two is acquiring working knowledge of Islam. Number three, understanding the country, the people, and their problems. 
Better than an American social religions and political activist, their history, living condition, likes and dislikes, behavior, manners, ethical standards, their beauties, their shortcomings, their age-old traditions, their social, economic, and political problems, and Islamic solution. Did you hear that? They're to they're like informants in our land to study everything, every aspect about us and our society in order to best promote Islamic uh, Islamic solution. The Islamic movement will prepare the Dawi to face each situation successfully. The, the apostle was well aware of the Arab's condition in all respect. Building trustworthy character, self-development program, developing the that's number four, and developing a habit of sacrificing time, talents, and resources for the goal is number six, be the integral part of the Islamic movement. Uh, and so I had to rush through those, but this is just to show you how organized, how they organize and how they're organizing the United States to first of all develop this base. This is Dawah Islam, the spread of Islam within our society. And they're doing it right now, and they're doing it successfully right now. They're working on doing it successfully. They're really going out to to do this. Next week, I think I'm going to talk about the Iranian Revolution, the beast and the mark. We'll, we'll talk about that first, and then we'll go into Muhammad the Antichrist, uh, versus the Antichrist. My name is Brenda Johnson, and I am the host as, as the day approaches. I thank you for joining me, and I hope you had a uh, great time today on this program. I enjoy each and every week coming to you to share this knowledge. If you want to get in touch with me, you can contact me on Facebook under Brenda Johnson, or I have a false teachings identifying them page on Facebook. Still working on my uh, my internet blog site. So thank you for joining me. Good day. <laughs>